Good evening. Good evening once again. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Um, it's very likely that Mr. Ca uh, Trevor Campbell-Davis, who will be chairing this evening, is going to creep in down the side halfway through Sue's presentation. <laughs> so if that happens, then you'll know who he is. Um, this, um, firstly, thank you very much indeed once again for uh, coming tonight and braving the cold, the sleet and the snow. It's an excellent turnout once again. Um, this uh, lecture represents pretty much halfway through the medical innovation course. And in a sense, from now on, uh, what we're looking at is a, is a sort of a going into phase two in medical innovation. The first three lectures we saw uh, John Bell, Lionel Tarasenko, and Oliver Bernath give um, sort of more general overviews of medical innovation. Firstly, what it is. Uh, secondly, how academia is, relates to medical innovation, how it can improve it. And thirdly, how you can start to build businesses around your ideas in the third lecture. From now on, we're going to be focusing down into some slightly more niche areas. And tonight we'll hear from Professor Sue Dobson about uh, the slightly more sociological, if you like, aspect to medical innovation and looking in more detail about how it's difficult to innovate in large, complex healthcare organizations. What are some of the barriers to change? And in subsequent lectures, we'll be looking at intellectual property rights, what they are and how to get them. Um, we'll be looking at service delivery innovations because, of course, medical innovations aren't just about technological outputs. But we'll also be looking at innovation in developing countries and how to partner with a variety of different organizations. So this is really a, entering in now into a more slight, a slightly sort of specific and specialist niche areas that I hope will be just as illuminating for you as the previous lectures. A couple of words about our chair for tonight when he arrives so that you'll know who he is. Um, Mr. Uh, Trevor Campbell-Davis has, uh, whilst... Um, uh, qualifying as an engineer and an accountant, um, has had a long and illustrious career as in a variety of executive roles in significant hospitals around the country. Um, St. Mary's, uh, the Whittington Hospital, and now, of course, uh, the uh, John Radcliffe Hospital, where he's the chief executive. He is therefore extremely well placed to comment on Sue's lecture with regards to how change is or is not possible in the NHS. But without further ado, let me introduce our speaker for tonight, Professor Sue Dobson. Um, Sue is a professor of organizational behavior here at the Side Business School and has um, extensive experience not only as a manager within the NHS, but also um, from the academic side. She's published widely not only on how to get medical research evidence into clinical practice, but also on how to improve clinical effectiveness and, has, and is the author of a variety of books on the area namely From Knowledge to Action, um, Leading Healthcare Organisations and Managing Ambiguity and Change, the case of the NHS. So we very much look forward to uh, welcoming her onto the stage. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Matthew. Apologies for the strap line. They make us use this in the business school. So I think educating leaders for 800 years is, is a good thing, I think, but we'll wait and see. So this is a bit like getting the exam question that you dread. Uh, this was not my title. This was a title that I, in a sense, uh, was given. I'm answering this question as a researcher. I'm drawing on some 10 years of research looking at the careers of innovation largely where the objective is to get the results of research evidence into clinical practice, 
or where the NHS policymakers have pushed to innovate in some kind of way? And it will undoubtedly be a partial answer, but I hope it will generate a, a more general discussion on this issue. A general uh, comment I would start with is that in my work looking at policy-led innovations, I've been struck by the incredibly rational managerial models that policymakers draw on when they're thinking about innovation processes. For example, the one on the, on the, uh, the side there, where essentially you've got a, a model there of unfreezing the organization, putting, getting some movement, and somehow miraculously refreezing it. Or in a sense, those eight points down the end, which are the meat and drink of management of change, from which I earn my living in some senses, but they are incredibly rational uh, views about how change actually occurs. And policymakers in particular have drawn on a framework by uh, Rogers uh, where the assumption here is that the innovation will be adopted if people can see the benefits or can use it or they can observe some kind of positive outcomes. In reality, uh, diffusion of innovation processes are much more messy and incredibly complicated. And in fairness to policymakers, business schools haven't really been that useful. Um, in some senses, uh, Rogers again points to a problem that organizational researchers such as myself have not done really enough empirical work to help explore that messiness, explore that complicated world. And so in a sense, he said, we should increase our understandings of the motivations for adopting an innovation. Strangely, such why questions about adopting an innovation have rarely been probed by diffusion researchers. And in some senses, that's what I've been trying to do in the last uh, 10 years or so. So what I want to cover is really what we can learn from um, work that I've been involved in uh, with others that's looked at the implementation of evidence-based medicine in the NHS, the kind of um, groovy kind of policy push uh, in some sense to make sure that good scientific research that is out there actually gets into clinical practice uh, and that practice is more associated uh, with you know, robust evidence in some sense. So I want to explore what we've learned from that kind of work and also to explore what we can learn from an attempt by the Department of Health to encourage translational science and multidisciplinary working in the field of genetic science. And then uh, to be a little bit brave and try and think about, well, what might actually help overcome some of those difficulties? And that is, in some sense, where I think the discussion probably should go. So let's then turn to this database of kind of work on evidence-based medicine. And here one's drawing on work with colleagues uh, Ewan Furley, Louise Fitzgerald, and David Chambers. And in some senses, you know, this is a big database for qualitative research. This is kind of proof that I, what I'm about to say isn't just based on uh, glorified journalism. It was very serious called a case study qualitative research um, with lots and lots of interviews, which were great fun to do. I didn't do them all, but I enjoyed doing it. So let's go through some of these themes that have emerged from the work that speak to this question of why is innovation so hard to achieve in the National Health Service. The first theme uh, that we found from you know, looking at that work 
was essentially when people were talking about evidence, they were actually really, in a sense, talking about a contested field. Evidence was contested. Um, in some senses, what we found was no such thing as evidence. There are competing bodies of evidence. Clinicians are, see experience uh, as a, a really important source of evidence. Um, so evidence, if it chimes with experience, is more likely to lead to innovation. So the credibility of evidence is very much based on the source and hierarchies of evidence exist. Different professional groups who are working within the NHS have very different uh, hierarchies of evidence. So for clinicians, the randomized control trial is a gold standard. But for other professions, there are different kinds of evidence uh, that is valued. So there are different kinds of um, uh, views on, on scientific evidence amongst those professions. And in our work, we found very limited examples of um, opportunities or of interprofessional sharing of evidence, of discussion of evidence across professions. These discussions tended to take place in, in, in very sort of bounded professional groups. The other insight coming from the data on the contested uh, nature of evidence was the reaction that some clinicians had to the notion of evidence-based medicine. Some saw it as an attempt to codify knowledge and undermine their clinical judgment. And some examples of, of this. Um, here's an ENT consultant talking. I think that the problem with practice at my level is that it's very individual. That is why I don't agree with evidence-based medicine. There isn't any evidence to help you deal with a difficult patient, and we get large the difficult patients because the routine patients are dealt with the GPs. If we look at the registrar, we're just too busy to be able to stop on a ward ground and discuss evidence-based medicine with every patient. It's inappropriate, nice in principle, difficult to do in practice. And here's the GP. I don't think GPs are the people to do EBM. Uh, GPs just simply don't have the time, or in many cases, the statistical ability. By the time patients are ready for hospital, it's much easier to practice EBM on them because you've got a much more defined population. At GP level, you've got a hodgepodge of problems completely, and they're nowhere as clear-cut as they are by the time the GP has sifted them and sent them off to the hospital. So in some senses, these are not atypical comments. Um, each respondent is conceding evidence-based medicine is a good thing, but not, in a sense, in my backyard. So... Clinicians, of course, don't just respond in a relatively detached manner to innovation. They're also taking into account the impact on them. They're making judgments about how the innovation fits into their particular world, their particular context, and their views of themselves as professionals. A second theme suggested by this work um, is, is really around the importance of uh, social and cognitive professional boundaries. And in my world in diffusion literature, um, this has not really been recognized or thought through carefully enough. But in some senses, we found that these, these kind of boundaries, which of course are related to how one is educated and trained and developed and your professional development and so forth, um, in a sense, are, prof are profoundly important uh, in the innovation process. 
Um, and as I've already uh, alluded to, many decisions about innovation adoption seem to be taken in these very uni-professional communities of practice. So we need to spend time thinking and understanding the traditions of the education and training of these different groups if we're to have more success, especially if the innovation involves multiple groups working together in some way to get things to happen. A third general theme of this work that I think is, is relevant to the question is the importance that we, of understanding the social context in which innovations are taking place. What do I mean by that? Context is an incredibly poorly understood mediator of many, many change processes, not just innovation, but more generally. Um, what do we mean by context? I suppose here I'm thinking about the importance of understanding the history of an organization, the relationships, what's happened in the past. That kind of legacy, that kind of history, can make a big difference in terms of uh, impacting on the innovation process. Of course, if structures are more complicated like they are in the health service, things are going to be more difficult. And so in some senses, um, what our work suggests, that we need to pay attention to um, context in which this innovation is going to be introduced. And in some senses, only context-sensitive diffusion process will be effective. So sound ideas, no matter how good they are, need to be customized in some way to local context. And we found that the NHS context, as you will know, is unbelievably complicated, unbelievably This is probably a very simple context. One of our case studies was um, glue ear in children. I became quite an expert on treatment of glue ear in children, probably the only thing my children have never had. But nonetheless, um, unbelievably complicated. So here, this case study is essentially looking at the adoption rates of guidelines for glue ear in children, quite, quite a sort of straightforward bit of evidence. Essentially, these guidelines suggest that watchful waiting uh, is important before you resort to, to grommet insertion. And here you begin to see the stakeholders involved in that kind of process. Um, and decisions about whether to refer or not were not just influenced by the child's condition or the knowledge of the evidence. They were also um, really influenced by stakeholders, people's views about the quality of those services. What did they think of the practitioners? What did they think? About what kind of experiences have they had in referring a child on? So I'm highlighting the importance of thinking very carefully about contextual issues when trying to innovate in complex organizations like the NHS. Um, targets, both national and local, obviously cause people to pay attention. Um, but interestingly, what we found in our work was that individual actors will draw on evidence very often if it supports what they really want to do. And indeed, individuals may choose to pay attention to less robust evidence if it helps them. So if there's a patient need locally, you, know, you grab what you can because you, you want to make something happen. So in that sense, context uh, is, is again a powerful mediator. Turning now more to the, uh, another theme, really looking at the role of the actors in the diffusion process that, that seem to emerge as influential in this particular work. 
Um, we found that um, in most uh, innovation, uh, careers of innovation, you know, medical dominance was maintained at a local level. Um, and where diffusion depended on groups working together, the quality of the relationships between those groups was really very, very important. So we need to recognize, in some sense, you know, the complexity of actors involved in these processes. Interdependence is both interprofessional and interorganizational. We need to appreciate the complex interdependencies and power relationships at play if you want to understand why innovations do or don't get adopted. And I think that's an important part of the analysis as well. Particularly striking in, in our data was also the role that opinion leaders can play in diffusion processes. Um, these are kind of leaders who, in some sense, have some credibility. And people look to them for signals about how to behave. Um, and in some senses, these people were remarkably influential in innovation processes in the NHS. And when we talk about an opinion leader, um, in my world, this term is again used very clumsily, as though there's only one way to be one. <laughs> in our work, we found that in some senses, opinion leaders could be technical experts, brilliant scientists, who people respected for their knowledge and their research, or they could be respected practitioners who were just good at doing their stuff, and they had peer credibility. Um, opinion leaders can also be negative. So in some senses, um, the lesson there is that these people exist. They seem to make a big difference about whether things happen or not. It's really uh, important if you're managing these kinds of processes to at least try and spot who they are. <coughs> so um, a sort of final general theme um, from this, this work is, uh, in some senses, the importance of networks. This emerged as an important sort of theme, understanding the formal networks, you know, what's down on the paper or what's supposed to happen, and also the kind of informal networks, um, you know, who likes whom, who's got social capital with whom, and so forth. So networks, in some senses, do play a part in translating innovation uh, to a local le level. Uh, networks can engage individuals in the diffusion process, but they can also be problematic. And I want to look in more detail now at about a policy-led initiative by the Department of Health um, to create networks specifically with the objective of translating the results of genetic science uh, and innovation into NHS practice. Um, in April 2001, the UK government, Department of Health, and indeed the Department of Trade and Industry came together to provide £15 million to fund over five years UK genetics. And in a sense, they were looking to fund six genetics knowledge parks. Um, the idea was essentially to bring together academic scientists, including social scientists, with an interest in genetics, clinicians, healthcare providers, private companies, patient groups, 
ethical and legal experts in order to encourage more effective collaboration and to foster practical improvements in healthcare from breakthroughs in the science of genetics. And the idea was to sort of make sure that that was translated in, 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 into NHS practice. Um, the DTI got involved in this. Um, subsequently, I learned, because I interviewed quite a lot of the policymakers, that they had got to their end of year and they needed to spend the money on something. So in a sense, made an alliance with the Department of Health. So in some sense, it was a kind of marriage of convenience, but nonetheless, that's how it got funded. So I spent, um, I guess, five years, not the whole of five years, but five years um, doing some longitudinal research, looking at how this particular genetics knowledge park um, developed and changed and so forth and also interviewed uh, policymakers about their intentions for this initiative. And, you know, did they think it was a success or not? It's quite rare to get an opportunity to look at this kind of innovation over time as a social science researcher. Um, so uh, consider this to be quite, quite, quite a lucky break. So let's have a look then uh, what we can learn from this in terms of why is innovation so difficult to achieve in the NHS. Here's a quotation from a very senior civil servant uh, talking about how on earth government, the Department of Health, got the idea to fund these genetic knowledge blocks. Six were eventually funded throughout the UK. Just given a lump of money and say, get on with it. Yeah, decide whatever you're going to do in some senses. That sounds a bit flippant, but I'll, I'll say a little bit more on that. Here's the quotation um, from the senior civil service about, in a sense, the kind of thoughtfulness and the objectives of this particular initiative. The idea for the GKP appeared very late in the drafting of the NHS plan. Virtually just a sentence, just a throwaway sentence that took everyone by surprise. And when the then health secretary was questioned what it was, he said, you tell me. And we had to develop some themes, right? So in some senses here, we're getting a sort of sense of um, the lack of care and thoughtfulness amongst those policymakers about what this initiative was supposed to do. And in some sense, the objectives were translate stuff from genetics into the NHS, please, and commercialize something. Those were essential. And by the way, if you can, let's have some good examples of multidisciplinary working. That was essentially the kind of brief. So in, in a sense, um, there was unclear specification on what essentially was you know, a, an organizational innovation, what it was there to do. And very quickly, the Department of Health um, decided that they ought to have a kind of governance thing. So they created an advisory group of the great and the good um, who willingly came together uh, met every three months. I interviewed them regularly. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. They didn't know why they were there. They knew it was a good thing to do. Um, so in a response to try and understand what they were supposed to do and find out what was going on in these six well-funded parks, they introduced uh, quarterly reporting with tick boxes and please could you tell us what you're doing here and how you're spending your budget and all the rest of it. So in some senses, there was no helpful governance architecture. And this proved to be a significant uh, factor impeding innovation more generally across those six parks. 
The GKP that I worked with, uh, which I will call the Old University GKP, chose to go down a very scientific route. One of these uh, genetics knowledge parks spent the money on a new building and seemed to get away with it, but this one decided that it was going to seriously take uh, the science of genetics very seriously. So created three work packages, and the fourth work package was essentially a social science work package, so trying to get social scientists to work with clinicians and scientists and so forth. So I was really looking at the career, if you like, of one innovation, and that was a genetics test for sudden cardiac death. So let's just have a look at, in 2001, when this thing was put together, um, you know, what did it sort of look like? Um, in some senses, you begin to get a sense of the complexity again. We have uh, essentially uh, the university working with the NHS, Department of Trade and Industry, and the Department of Health somewhere governing this thing in a very inadequate uh, manner. You've got the other GKPs outside, they sort of semi-compete, semi-cooperate with. And you have sort of labs that are in the NHS and research labs and so forth. It doesn't really matter about the details of that, but visually, visually you begin to see um, the complexity uh, involved in, in simply trying to get translational science. Um, so this is interesting, because the uh, really the innovation is partly around can the university and the NHS really work meaningfully together to translate great science into the health service. And this complexity had a very lean management structure with it. It had one network director and essentially quite a small executive board comprising of the leaders of the research packages, a representative from the DTI, Department of Health, who rarely sort of came but were supposed to there, some NHS representation and so forth. So quite a lot of actors there involved. As the GKP settled down over time, uh, in some senses it settled down to a very core group of stakeholders. The patient groups disappeared off the scene somewhere. The DTI left because suddenly they realized that it was actually jolly difficult to commercialize genetics research, so they moved on to other things. Um, the Department of Health, you know, got administratively crazy trying to report on everything. Uh, and some of the uh, key scientists simply moved on to other projects. They'd sort of got their money, they, they, they were into other things. So over time, you saw this kind of complexity narrow down to a key set of actors. And in some senses, um, the, the remaining uh, affiliations of groups involved in that uh, particular uh, setting um, are represented on this slide. And essentially, what we've got here is, is different kinds of communities who think about knowledge in different ways, who work in different ways, who speak to others in particular ways. And in some senses, they are epistemic communities, which is a bit of social science jargon, which essentially means kind of cultures of knowledge, different kinds of cultures. So these were the communities of practice, the knowledge communities, if you like, in some senses left uh, in this particular um, example. And the institutional affiliation is important. 
it was interesting that you know, the university and the NHS have different governance structures. They have different HR policies. They have um, different IT systems, which makes it quite difficult to work together. Some people couldn't send each other an email for some reason. I don't know. But anyway, it was that sort of stuff. It's hard for those systems, because they have different structures, different cultures, and so forth, uh, to work together in some senses. So eventually... In 2007, and there is an interesting story over time, although genetic science does move quite slowly, um, eventually you get some interesting clashes between what I call epistemic communities, communities of practice. And I just want to sort of go through some of them because I think it again speaks to this difficulty of how do you get these you know, relatively strong groups to work together. The first uh, epistemic clash, or clash, if you like, was between, in a sense, the Department of Health and the sort of university NHS. In some senses, um, scientists always knew that, you know, science takes a long time. And that's not meant to be a rude comment, but it's, it requires careful work and, uh, and, and so forth. But the Department of Health had this idea that they were funding a kind of cool new innovation where they could get some brownie points and, and some kind of good news. So you have, that different, you have that different understanding about the science. And then you have some tensions between, um, in a sense, the scientists who you know, simply want to move on. They've got some money to do some interesting work. The, the, the research grant has been useful to leverage other grants. They've got their publication. That sort of tension between, uh, then between the other uh, push to try and get this science into NHS practice. So, you know, the network director was being monitored by the Department of Health to give examples of translation of science into clinical practice. So again, that's another uh, particular tension. And I've already alluded to um, the sort of standardized quarterly reporting with, with no feedback from the Department of Health and how that caused tensions locally. So in some senses, that was one particular sort of general clash. The other clash, which was interesting, and I, I, I haven't spent that long messing about in laboratories, but interestingly, um, there seemed to be some clashes around those people who did research um, in labs and, and the sort of NHS laboratory scientists. And again, some quotations might help make that point. The way we work in the research lab is we try and get everything as fast as possible because it's a competitive world. We need visible productivity. To scrape over the surface for the big prize, the clinical genetics lab is incredibly compulsive and obsessive. They do everything in duplicate and they never get anything wrong. That's very reassuring. But the problem is that if you are compulsive obsessive, it just takes too long. So you begin to get a sense of um, you know, the, the research scientists needing the NHS labs to feed them with information but their culture was to do things really, really, really carefully, understandably so. And again, the, the quote from the research scientists, they, the NHS scientists, feel they are providing a service and being careful, and we, the research scientists, are feckless people who wander in at 11 o'clock and go home at 3 and look for the glory. So again, you begin to get a flavor of some of those, those different kinds of clashes, those different worlds, 
the, the different incentive structures that are coming up against one another. And interestingly, the last uh, point on the slide here, which I think is, is interesting, in the course of this work, the laboratory uh, scientists in the NHS um, were quite reluctant to share information about the costs of this test or how they priced things and things like that because they were in competition with other labs in the NHS. So if that leaked out, their market, their, their service could be undermined. So here we begin again to see this importance of context. We begin to see the wider contextual pressures operating in the NHS, making things difficult for local sharing and local innovation. The um, next kind of clash that kind of emerged was around science and social science, my discipline. The um, social scientist there essentially um, was an economist, a sociologist, an ethicist, and a legal uh, person. Um, and interestingly, the economist was able to kind of move across these kind of boundaries because it did numbers, she or he did numbers, and helped prove that the sudden cardiac death test was indeed cost-effective, etc. She was very successful at being a boundary spanner across those communities of practice. The sociologist, and this is not me, although I am a sociologist, that their sociology work was weird, it was no benefit. And, and then the research scientists, our world is very black and white. So when a sociologist talks to me about barriers in networks, it doesn't mean much to me. These words, sort of sociology people, just, we're just providing material for them to write interesting papers, okay? So in some senses, you get that sort of sense. Of, and in some senses, the sociology person was trying to get data for writing, but he was on a short-term contract for three years. What was he supposed to do in some senses? So again, this contextual pressure, short-term contract, sociologists, I need data, I want to publish. Help me. Versus, you know, what, what are they doing for me? So we begin to get that. The final um, kind of clash that I wanted to uh, allude to was this kind of commissioning stuff. I mean, in a sense, management and the commissioning stuff wasn't really in the conversations <laughs> that I was observing until about year four. And then suddenly, we had this desire, there's a test. God, it needs to be commissioned. What do we do about that? Now, that's a bit crass, but in some senses, the conversations with the commissioning bodies um, took place relatively late. They were not involved, in some senses, early enough in that innovation conversation. So again, some, uh, the commissioner there, they hadn't thought through the process to completion. You can't just think about genetics in isolation. How does that fit in with the rest of cardiac services? Think of the knock-on effects, the unintended consequences. Although it's frustrating, you think, well, just give us the money and we can get on with it, you have to be conscious of the bigger picture. The economic case for many service changes is fine, but the NHS works on a cash basis. And unless we get the cash, the defibrillators, we can't do it. It's not just the cost of the test, it's the cost of the NHS and the year of introduction. So here we begin, fairly late on the innovation process to get the kind of reality about money stuff coming in. The main lesson for us is to tie up with the commissioning process because it doesn't matter how fancy your research is. If you're aiming to get it translated into practice, it has to be commissioned. If you can't just run on whim, you have to have the evidence behind it. You have to make that persuasive argument. So again, you begin to see uh, that I think there's some, some lessons there about a barrier 
interest and the importance of, of, of including the kind of commissioning process on the radar screen at an early enough point if you're thinking about translating. So, here I'm highlighting by looking at these communities of practice and the clashes that can emerge. And this was a, this was a success story. Okay? This particular genetic spot was very highly regarded. But I'm highlighting here the importance of appreciating the incentives at work in these different groups, the career structures that people have to operate in. Researchers and research scientists are incentivized to produce publications from science. That may be more important to them in securing credibility and resources they need to continue their practice than creating the NHS service. It may be. Commissioners' credibility and ongoing flow of resources depends on providing NHS services without overspending their budgets. The communities in the NHS labs may be more concerned with protecting their practice from competition from other labs and not making mistakes than creating a new NHS service. Social scientists on fixed-term contracts need to ensure that they have credibility to get a job once the contract expires. And finally, the Department of Health may need to demonstrate tangible translation of science into the NHS in return for what is a quite a big investment. So a major piece of learning, I think, from this case is the need for those charged with managing innovation networks or innovation processes to spend time thinking about the issues of motivation and interdependencies for these particular groups. So both chunks of work that I've uh, talked about speak to the complexity of getting innovation into practice in the National Health Service. The themes that I've highlighted are already part of the story, financial constraints, governance issues, intellectual property, the sorts of themes that I guess will be touched on in the seminar series. But I want to just finish by some thoughts about um, some difficulties of, of these kinds of processes. So why is knowledge sticky? Um, it could be around <coughs> spatial boundaries in the NHS. It's very complicated. Organizational boundaries. Getting the university and the NHS to work is a nightmare. Together, not to work, but together. Inter-organizational boundaries are problematic. Professional boundaries is communities of practice. All these things make it difficult for knowledge to flow across these particular boundaries, whether they're organizational, cognitive, or whatever. So... Uh, in some senses, you know, drawing on organizational studies scholarship, um, I guess I would highlight the importance of seeing getting innovations into practice in complex settings like the NHS as a, a really complicated management of change problem. Sharing will not just happen. You need skilled facilitation, good governance procedures. You need to get the incentive structures right. You need to think about these bridging roles. The network director of that genetics knowledge part was a fantastic boundary span and was able to move with credibility across these different groups. It made a difference. You need to recognize this power stuff. It's important, very important to recognize power differences and interdependencies. The importance of spending time really, really, really thinking about context, not in a flippant way, but in a meaningful way. History, stakeholders, power, all of that um, needs really careful analysis. Think about how you can harness the positive roles of opinion leaders. If, if I'm right and they're important, then we need to target them and use them in, in some ways. Think about the different roles in which opinion leaders, in some senses, can play. And in some senses, you know, people who have to manage this stuff, in some sense, 
are, are really um, you know, incredibly, um, it's a difficult job. You need patience, you need time. There are too many priorities in the NHS. There's too much stuff going on to know what to kind of concentrate on. And that, I think, is another barrier which I'm sure Trevor may have a view of. So we need to develop skills. We need to create forums where the right people are having useful conversations rather than forums where the wrong people are having unhelpful conversations, which seem to be quite a lot in evidence in the NHS and indeed in this business school as well. So getting innovation into practice is not, in some sense, simply a technical challenge. It's not just a technical challenge about setting a task and kind of measuring and monitoring and get on with it. It is really almost an adaptive challenge. It requires different kinds of leadership. It requires leadership that, in a sense, gets on that balcony and looks down about what's happening, can describe a view of the future, can give work to the people, can coach, can challenge. The leader needs almost to be an architect, where you're designing organizations where people can work across these boundaries, where they can learn from one another, where they can talk to one another in a meaningful way. And I will finish now. And so I just wanted to sort of end uh, by, by, by making this plea in a sense for, you know, let's think more creatively about how we can work across these difficulties uh, and such complexity. It's not at all easy, as I hope I've alluded to. But I love this quote from Sir Geoffrey Vickers, who's one of these kind of marvellous uh, individuals who's done everything, can be everywhere. But he's looked, in a sense, uh, this sort of innovation, leadership, scholarship, of which um, I try and play a part in. And he said... I've had to supply questions, sorry, my inquiry into it, i.e. the scholarship, has led me further than I expected. I've had to question sciences in which I am not professionally qualified, and sometimes to supply my own answers um, when theirs, the academics, uh, seem so ambiguous, inconsistent, or absent. I present the result with humility, but without apology. Even the dogs may eat of the crumbs which fall from the rich men's table, and in these days... When the rich in knowledge eat such specialized foods at such separate tables, only the dogs have a chance of balanced diet. Thank you very much. Good evening. And uh, it's a wonderful quote, isn't it? I joined you a few minutes late because I was caught up in the nightmare that Sue was describing at the end, uh, trying to get university and trust to work effectively together. So my apologies for that. Uh, Sue and I first uh, met in, a, in her present incarnation because some years ago, as I was beginning to engage with the NHS community in Oxford, I was looking at ways, coming from a business background myself, to find ways that we could get a more purposeful um, perhaps business-oriented approach to things within the local NHS. And we've had a number of conversations over quite a long period now beginning to, to bear fruit as we look with much more focused purpose at a relationship between the NHS more broadly in Oxfordshire and this part of England and, uh, and the, the University both of Oxford and Oxford Brookes and indeed the wider social community around us. So many of the engagement and stakeholder things you've just been hearing about from Sue are live issues for us in university and um, clinical work and patient services right now. Just uh, one or two observations before we open it to, to the floor, and I know you've all had an opportunity over the previous three lectures to, to come in at the 
perhaps the more positive end of this discussion about how innovation can be catalyzed and switched on, rather than as we're doing this evening, focusing on where some of the sludge factors, as, as I might call them, are. But I first got involved uh, 18 years ago in the health service from a, an engineering and accounting and publishing background, and slightly to my surprise, I found myself staying doing the things I'm now doing. Looking back, and it wasn't always easy to see in advance, but looking back, the thing that's kept me engaged is exactly what we're talking about today, what you've been hearing so, so capably from Sue about, where the, uh, where the fracture lines are, where the difficulties are, and where the things that, if we, if we can change them, will give us a real step change in the way complex organizations of the sort that Sue was describing relate to one another. So you've had from Sue in her talk this evening examples in evidence-based medicine, in, um, in the, the knowledge park work where government tried to intervene, where the complexity or the lack of ownership in the different tribes and stakeholder or professional groups can get in the way of change. And that came through, I think, Sue, very powerfully in the, in the examples that you gave. Every day, I see the professional boundaries operating in a way, and I see many of our clinicians in the, in the audience this evening, in a way that's both very purposeful and effective for patients, but the obverse of that coin is that it can, it, if you get it wrong, can lead to, to, uh, to ultimately to a dysfunctional organization which operates as a collection of self-contained delivery units rather than anything that I would recognize from a business purpose as being a joined up managed organization. So these issues of interesting to hear them called both social and cognitive boundaries are real and uh, pertinent to your understanding, I would suggest, in terms of how we deal with these issues going forward. Complexity, certainly. I've worked in my lifetime in, I think, eight different industries, um, and healthcare in the public sector in the UK is by far the most complex. That may sound strange at first comment, but actually, if you think about it, what a hallmark of it is the is the complexity of stakeholder interest and the legitimacy of stakeholder interest that in a way in a job like mine can require me to pay attention to a 360 degree community in the way that I've never had to do running a publishing business, an accounting firm or an engineering business. It's fundamentally um, different in the, in the degree of complexity and the, the attention it requires. Perhaps one of the things, Sue, that came out for me most clearly in your talk were your comments about the importance of context, understanding how both the organization itself and its relationship with that complexity of stakeholders around it impacts on the ability of the organization to make decisions. It's interesting if you look at a university, the one that we're sitting in this evening, a community of knowledge is something where in a way, intentionally and rightly, all the boundaries are porous. And indeed, even time conflicts to to respond to the stimulus of new knowledge. And I'd contrast that, take Sue's example of putting a university and an NHS organization together, just as one example. I would contrast that community of knowledge with a community of delivery. Increasingly, for those of you who know the health service or work in it, whether we like it or not, it has become much more delivery-focused in response to a consumerist and a customer-focused society. So if you like, you've got a, a box with porous edges over here, changing shape in response to a range of stimuli, and over here, much more akin to a, to a business that you might find yourself employed by, responding to a delivery imperative that comes from up, somewhere upstream, not, not always even within the organi organization itself. So those fundamental differences begin to define what is or is not possible. And when you look at the delivery of innovation, as we've been doing through the series of talks, 
understanding those differences is perhaps even more important than understanding the similarities of purpose at a personal or an individual level uh, within, within, within either organization. So I have a, I have a question for Sue. Um, the NHS, as most of you will have observed, has, has been changing. It's been in existence for just on 60 years. It's been relatively monolithic, relatively, some might say, Stalinist, and it's been owned and pushed to deliver from way up there somewhere with us down here, sometimes with goodwill, sometimes not getting on and doing it. It's now been taken. It's been separated so that organizations such as mine providing health care are distinguished from the commissioners, the buyers of health care on behalf of the public. Providers of health care are becoming increasingly autonomous. We're focusing even more explicitly on quality. We're focusing on customer care organizationally as well as individually at the clinician level. We're focusing on good business practice corporately as well as at the clinical level. And we're trying to become more of a managed organization in a way that I would recognize in running a business. So the question is this. Given the complexity of bringing that porous circle changing shape together with the delivery organization, do you think that that reinvention of the NHS, Sue, for the next 20 or 30 years will make it more, uh, more difficult to deliver innovation in the way that we're talking? Or do you think there might be something in there that will actually make it easier for us and allow you and me to find so the solution to, to all of this? <laughs> I think that's a very um, interesting question. I mean, I think partly um, it's will, isn't it, when we have to sort of try and have these conversations to make it uh, work together so we can. You know, and essentially we're looking at the university and the NHS trying to work more sensibly together. I think it's spending time understanding um, those different kinds of worlds that you've been talking about. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's about designing processes that are meaningful and will lead to sort of change. And it's about getting the incentives right for people to join in in some senses as, as well. So I'm, I'm, opt I'm optimistic, but I'm optimistic about lots of things. Good. Thank you for that. Well, this evening I said was about the sludge factors and the difficulties. Thank you for bearing with them. Thank you for giving me such a, an optimistic message at the end. And thank you, Dobson.